I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Did you ever wonder what it was like to be a female and compete at the highest level in in sports? Our guest today, Val Ackerman, has accomplished an incredible journey with the capstone event being inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. This journey will highlight her roots, her family, her incredible experiences, and how she has led the formation of the Big East and her contribution to basketball, both in the United States and globally. Welcome, friends. We're blessed to have an extraordinary leader with us today, strategic, visionary, empathetic. Val Ackerman, with all of her accomplishments, has just been named to the Hall of Fame for basketball. I've known her for a number of years, and her empathy, her ability to build tremendous relationships is incredible. Thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, Jed, great to be with you as always. I look at your background and I I see your grandfather and father were athletic directors. So how much did they impact you in terms of being not only a tremendous basketball player, but field hockey and track and all those different endeavors that you were involved in growing up? Well, Jed, I think many of us are influenced by uh, our experiences in our formative years. And that was so the case with me. As you noted, I um, I grew up with a sports family. My grandfather was actually a graduate of Springfield College. He played basketball at Springfield College. Sort of, I always think about that. Right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, back. Exactly. I don't know if he played for Dr. Naismith at all, but he probably came close. And then uh, was an AD, as you noted, um, loved sports, was a summer camp counselor. I mean, he couldn't care more about um, young people and having sports part of their lives. And then my dad picked up on that and became himself an AD and a basketball referee. My dad was actually the AD at my high school in central New Jersey. And that was very cool to wander into his office, you know, between classes and say hi. So they uh, very much influenced me. I I guess I thought I'd be an AD someday. Um, that, That didn't happen. But, you know, my work in sports and especially my work in basketball, which uh, was a sport I know my dad loved the most, um, is very meaningful to me again because of those personal connections. Your basketball, you set the the record in high school for both men's and women's in terms of the amount of points you scored. And then you decide, how do you pick UVA? Well, Virginia, which was a dream school, you know, was the, became my, my top choice. I looked south growing up in Jersey. I wanted to be someplace warmer. (laughs) <laughs> and so I was looking at basically ACC schools at that time. And, um, and so Virginia became the one. I will confess, you know, the coach at that time, Debbie Ryan, who built the program, was herself a women's basketball Hall of Famer, 
what went to my high school. We had a family tie. And so her younger sister was a contemporary. I knew Karen. And then when Debbie kind of came nosing around (laughs) my senior year in high school, it really did help that um, I knew the family and my family, I think, felt like I'd be in good hands going to Charlottesville under Debbie's tutelage. So that that played in a lot. And of course, it's a great school, beautiful place. And of course, women's sports were just getting off the ground there. So um, so we were basically pioneers. But one of the best decisions I ever made was to end up in Charlottesville. Three-year captain. I mean, you started uh, with leadership and breaking ceilings in terms of what it related to what women were capable of achieving. How do you decide to go to UCLA? I mean, you go south, now you head west. So what's the family thinking? Their daughter's moving away. I got them perplexed. I mean, you didn't know. In between, I went to France to play basketball. You play basketball. Yeah, I was. So this was all, these were all the semesters abroad I never had. Yes. (laughs) Because basketball is a two-semester sport, and I was locked down on campus there. France was great. I was able to play on a club team there. And, and that lasted a season. And then I came back, back to the USA. And then UCLA was just re- recommended to me by an advisor at Virginia, you know, great school. I had family in LA. It was a different part of the country. So it was sort of a life experience package being there. And again, that was, it was far from home and I didn't stay in LA when I graduated. And, and so I think for, for anybody listening, family ties really do matter, can matter. And that was certainly the case with me. It was my adventure my West Coast adventure, and then I came back east after I graduated. And then somehow you're at the forefront of the NBA really taking off, where you join David Stern and Rick Welts and Russ Granick, and you begin to build this incredible organization. And in the meantime, you also launched the WNBA. So what was that whole experience like working with David and with that team you had? Jed, it was, you know, you know them all. You knew, you knew David well. I mean, it was the experience of, of a lifetime for me professionally. Um, a dream job. My first job at the league was as a staff attorney. I was actually working for Gary Bettman, was who hired me at the league. He was a general counsel there for many years. And so I, uh, I joined his team, a fledgling legal department. There were four of us. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I was the first, the first female lawyer ever hired by the league. Um, and the league was small. It was only 100 people all in, which is sort of unimaginable given how much they've expanded their operation over the last 30 years. So I had a, um, an amazing experience. I started working for Russ Granick, the eminently respected deputy commissioner, pretty much right away on other projects outside of legal. That led to my work with USA Basketball. You'll remember that first dream team in Barcelona, yes. which was a man, talk about a career highlight for me, working as one of the point people with USAB on bringing that team into being in 1992. That was extraordinary. They were a rock, rock star team. If you ever you know, uh, could think of one, it was them. I had this amazing array of experiences at the league when it was in a, you know, and it was a, was a smaller operation. David at that time was in his fourth year as commissioner. The place was very entrepreneurial, very nimble. David was just sort of like running around. (laughs) If there was a good idea, he wanted to do it. And, you know, to your question, that eventually led to the, you know, to the interest in women's basketball that started around 1994-ish and eventually culminated with the WNBA. You also mentioned USA Basketball. So you join that and you become become the president of USA Basketball. And in addition, you're part of FIBA. 
So, I, I mean, in terms of a female being part of those organizations and leading them, I mean, you're doing things that hadn't been done before. Yeah, that's true, especially in the case of FIBA. I'll come back to that. On USAB, that was, uh, it was a real honor to serve as board chair. Um, in fact, it was a you know, nice landing when I left the WNBA. Really, very hard to leave the WNBA. It was, it was a my third child, <laughs> in many ways. I have two daughters now, twenty eight and twenty six, and the WNBA was the third child, um, bringing that into being. But I was really tired after really, you know, ten years of run up and then, you know, running the league for eight years. And I had been on the USA Basketball board beginning in '89. Again, when that first dream team came into being, the NBA needed spots on the board. So David appointed me, Russ, and Rod Thorne. Uh, I was very much entwined with the operation. Their staff in Colorado Springs, who are, you know, best at what they do, uh, bringing national teams gold medals. And so when I had the chance to be board chair, when I stepped down from the WNBA, that was an easy one. And it was great. I mean, uh, Jerry Colangelo was coming on at that point as managing director for the men's team, which needed to be you know, re-elevated after a not real great run in 02 and 04. The women's team, we sort of brought in, you know, brought to the modern age in 96 with the first gold medal in Atlanta. If Tokyo happens, they will go for their seventh straight gold medal this summer. And we set that in motion back in 95, 96. And so for me, that was great. While I was on, you know, in that role, a FIBA came calling, looking asking me if I would serve as the U.S. representative to the International Basketball Federation, which I agreed to do, spent two terms there. And that was, you know, very exciting. I mean, world travel and um, meeting, you know, Patrick Bauman modernized the place as Secretary General following um, legendary Boris Stankovich. They still have a long way to go there in, in recognizing, in my judgment, the importance of women to the future of the game of basketball. So while I'm gone from that board, I still kind of they hear from me every now and again as a general reminder. But those two experiences, USNB, ABA and FIBA, were really extraordinary and, and very glad that those opportunities came my way. Just based on your DNA and what you've done in terms of promoting uh, women uh, in the leadership roles and things you've advocated on. Talk a little bit about how that energy and that passion has developed in you. You know, I think we're all products of our experiences, you know, Jed, um, the good ones and sometimes the not so good ones. They, um, they, you know, they, they fortify us, they embolden us, they serve as positive reinforcements in many cases. And so for me, I, you know, I've had an amazing journey and some incredibly good experiences and being, I'm very proud, you know, of, of what's happened with women in the sports industry since I got into this now 33 years ago, joined the NBA in 88. So it's been 33 years this fall. You know, I was five <laughs> when I started. But, you know, it has been at times, you know, sort of sobering to be what I call my O-Witter, O-Witter moments, O-W-I-T-R moments, the only woman in the room moments. I still have many of them because my presidents are all men and my ADs now are all men. And, and that sometimes happens. Our, our crew at Fox Sports, our amazing national broadcast partner, it's a bunch of guys, but I love them all. And so you get used to it. But, um, but I, I do think in, in seriousness, our business, we, we need to sort of you know, uh, shrink the gap between the number of athletes who play sports. And there's so many. I mean, there's half a, you know, half a million in college sports. Half of that is women. We need to make sure the leader ranks, in my judgment, reflect the 
the diverse composition of that athlete base. We've got women, we've got people of all different ethnicities, sexual orientations, international, you know, is a big part of it. And so that that's my gig. You know, how do we just kind of make that, you know, more in line? And so I have tried, to your point, to be an advocate um, for that. I, I try to set an example on the work I do. People, uh, you know, women in the business um, need to live up to the expectations, just like, you know, male colleagues do. You have to do your work to be successful. You have to be a good colleague. You have to be capable and competent. And, and so uh, you have to earn it. You know, and so I've I've tried to live by that creed my entire career. I work very hard. Ask people who ask my husband who thinks I'm insane (laughs) by how hard I work. I never seem to be able to turn it off here. But that's our business, as you know. We're a 24/7 business. We have live events all days of the week, all times of the year, and that's the sacrifice you know we make for being in this amazing line of work. And so there are sacrifices that go with being a woman, a working mom in this business, but. Um, I'm proud of the accomplishments. Is there more work to be done? Yes. And I'm I'm committed to playing my part to make sure that happens. So taking over as a Big East commissioner, let's talk about what that journey's been like, trying to, after it had been blown up, you trying to pull all this thing together, help our audience understand what that task was like. It was, uh, I did not know what I was getting into, Jed, when I said, okay, sounded exciting to be part of the rebirth of this storied league, this basketball centric league that was uh, wanted to get back to its Dave Gavitt roots in New York, where I lived. Great schools. I'd grown up watching. You know, I knew Dave Gavitt. He was the president of USA Basketball. Back to our earlier topic here. He was the head of USAB when Russ and Rod and I joined the board. So we had an opportunity to work with Dave. He was like no other. He, he was very gifted and a mentor in ways he didn't know to me. So there it all came together you know, in uh, 2013 and I took the job, but we really did have to start it from scratch. The old Big East, my schools pulled out of the old Big East, the old Big East renamed, they became the American Athletic Conference. Um, Mike Oresco had to find replacement schools. So he had to deal with that. I had to deal with all the infrastructure and, and bringing to life this new Big East configuration. And so that involved, I had, no, I had virtually no staff. I had one or two people that had been prearranged for me. Um, I had no offices. Joe Lasessi, thankfully, longtime colleague at Proskauer Firm in New York, who did all the paperwork for the realignment of the new Big East, said, you can be with us. So I was, I was in, we were in their offices for 14 months. I kept adding staff and asking Joe for extra offices. Wow. Um, we had we had nothing. I mean, we had no bank account. Georgetown was running our books. We had no email. Um, I was ackerman.valagmail.com for you know months. We had no. I was promising my staff benefits packages because I didn't have them. Kept telling them, "Don't worry, you'll get benefits. Just trust me." It was wild, you know, and um, and it was a hard, frankly, very hard two years to get that done. All the while, you know, our teams were playing basketball, doing pretty well you know, turning heads because nobody expected that the schools in a football world were going to stay relevant um, when they, you know, had no football revenue, for example, to fall back on. But we, I think, defied the naysayers in an amazing way. And then when Villanova wins the national championship in 16 and then again in 18, I think it was just validation of this vision back to 2013 of what our presidents wanted to do in terms of controlling their destiny as basketball schools reasserting again the relevancy of a basketball conference it was really incredible that was like you know amazing my hat goes off to Jay Wright my colleague 
going into the basketball hall of fame. Right. I mean, I burst into tears, you know, when that news came over the wire that I was going to be able to do it with Jay Wright, who with, you know, class act, if there ever was one, we owe him so much, the new biggies for keeping us at a high level. So that's, that was icing on the, you know, that was icing on the cake here. So very hard, but you know, we're eight years in and I, you know, many challenges in college sports, as you know, well, with transfers and NIL and COVID recovery and, managing, you know, racial and social inequity and how our student athletes feel about that. But I, I have very high hopes for this conference. I think we're going to we're going to stay at a high level. Let's talk a little bit about some of those issues that you mentioned. Let's go back to the pandemic on how you helped your uh, universities manage through that and then uh, transition into the George Floyd event and how that kind of changed uh, two really events that marked our century. Uh, the pandemic and and the George Floyd tragedy. Well, the the pandemic, probably um, truism here, made, made for a year that none of us could have imagined and none of us will ever forget. It's beyond challenging, beyond words, um, the uncertainty, especially. I mean, in a business, you know, well, that's so calendarized. <laughs> I mean, we all, you know, we all plan. We all think about tomorrow. We all have our schedule grids mapped out, months out, years out. Our coaches especially know what days are going to be on the road to recruit, what days they have games, what days they're going to practice, what hours their practice days, you know, are going to involve. And so here we were not knowing any, anything about I'm going to have a season. When's it going to start? How's this going to work? Um, You know, the uncertainty I think was maddening for everyone. Very stressful. You know, we relied so heavily on our doctors we, I, you know, they were the heroes for us and many others in, in our space because we were taking their cues on, on testing, tracing, how to ha- handle travel, how to manage quarantines, how long are the quarantines, um, it, you know, and in our case, just using Big East, we, we're in 11 different jurisdictions. We have 10 states plus D.C. with our now 11 schools. So every every school is in a different state and every state had a different set of COVID protocols. They could go to the CDC for guidance, but at the end of the day, it was local authorities deciding what to do. So, you know, we're trying to sync up 11 different jurisdictions here on the rules. And so we, you know, we deferred to our docs um, very heavily. In fact, I, you know, now that our season's winding out, on my list is my heartfelt thank you note to all of them for hanging with us. We brought in some national experts to keep us posted on um, all sorts of developments with the virus as it was ricocheting around the country. It was really hard. Um, the NCA was modestly helpful because they, they couldn't tell us what to do. They were recommending things, but that was helpful. And then, you know, last but not least, I would say there was, you know, this adjustment to this, this Zoom world. Yes. I mean, our office has remained basically closed. Some people have been in and out, but we, I've not been together with my staff for the most part since, since the Big East tournament in 2020. So we've all been managing virtually and it's been really, you know, hard, Jed. I mean, we've made it work. And I think this technology adjustment will last in some ways. So I could foresee a hybrid now in terms of how we do our business, but you know, we're a live event business. So at the end of the day, you know, we need to go to events. Um, we need to be at games. Our schools need to be, you know, doing live events live. I hope that in the coming months, the worst of this will be behind us. The vaccine will vaccine will do what we were hoping it'll do. And we'll be back to some sense of normalcy with the start of the 21-22 academic year. 
Well, let me uh, come back. You mentioned vaccine. That seems to be uh, a potential issue with players on you know whether they want to take it or not take it. And how, what's your reaction to what pushback have you gotten from different universities, depending on the states they're in and things like that, as opposed to the individual rights uh, individuals have regarding the vaccine? Vaccine. I think um, I speak for most of my commissioner colleagues here uh, in saying that I expect this will be a school decision. It won't be conference mandate that every athlete has to get a vaccine or some relate have some related protocol. We'll leave it to our schools. They'll in turn consult with their council about the enforceability of, um, of any kind of a requirement for students, uh, for faculty. I mean, you know, they got a broader universe of people to worry about than, than we would. Um, and so uh, we know a couple of, we, we've seen already schools across the country beginning to require vaccines for incoming students for the fall of 21. That's on them. I know some of my schools, many are still wrestling with this question, have not made a decision about it. One thing that's clear is that having a vaccine may, if not will, be an incentive, can be an incentive for certain athletes because if they get the vaccine, then they would be taken out of testing requirements, which may continue. They may be taken out of quarantine requirements if somebody um, you know, they're a close contact with has COVID and what would otherwise be a 14 day or 10 day sit out for them may go away now if they have a vaccine. So, you know, it's my thought that that might be a pretty, pretty good incentive for somebody who's on the fence to get the vaccine because it would take away other obligations that they're going to be um, left dealing with if they were unvaccinated. So this is a work in progress, just too early to tell again, since we're winding down now college sports, we're not, you know, we're, we're not going to have to deal with this for the most part for a few months, but that, that issue, what, what additional policies might be warranted going into the fall due to wherever the virus is, um, is, you know, is something we're going to have to tangle with. But the good news is we have a bit of a playbook here. We will not have the kind of uncertainty we had at this time last year, which was very debilitating. So you talked about name, image, and likeness. How do, how do you see that playing its way out? It's not an if, it's a when, my, you know, my opinion. <laughs> um, reading all the leaves, we, um, we, we have, and, and I expect the when will be July 1st. Um, that's when a number of state NIL laws that would allow these benefits would go into effect with or without the NCAA. The NCAA has a framework that I and others worked up that was to be voted on back in January, and that didn't happen, mostly because the Department of Justice dropped a letter on the NCAA on the eve of the vote saying, we have some concerns about what we hear you're going to do with this, because there are some regulations associated with this. So the NCAA backed off, tabled the vote. And so folks have been kind of waiting now on the possibility of congressional intervention, the Alston decision, which is due in June, you know, what the state landscape was going to look like, et cetera. So, so here we are now on the eve of, um, of June. And again, I, I foresee this, you know, a framework happening. I mean, it's the right thing to do in my judgment for the student athletes. Other students get to monetize, especially in social media now. 
So the view now of our you know, folks is that why not make that opportunity available? There are some significant complexities in college sports with NIL because of recruiting and concerns around fairness in recruiting, most of all. So there are like a host of areas that, you know, that we have to tangle with as it relates to disclosure and the role of the schools and Title IX and pay for play. It, it's not as easy. I hope your listeners understand this. It's not easy on this. And it will be probably a bit of a messy launch because of this. And college sports won't look the same, probably. But it's 2021 and times change and systems evolve. And I, I you know, that's where the NCA is right now. So our schools are going to do what they can to maximize these opportunities for their athletes. You know, we're trying to get them ready. Many of them have hired vendors and have started education sessions and work groups on campus to, you know, prepare for the onset here. And I, you know, last thing I'll say, Jed, is I don't think where we start will be where we end. I think college NIL will evolve over time. Once we see where the tricky areas are, some things we're concerned about now may prove to be non-issues. Other areas may just, you know, hit us right between the eyes that we didn't see coming in terms of difficulties in managing, and we'll deal with that when the time comes. But um, it's going to happen. And as I said, it will be uh, it'll be a big change for folks in our business, as well as for the athletes themselves. As you mentioned, if there's not a central decision made from the NCAA or out of Congress, states doing it on their own, I mean, that's going to cause a lot of potential inequities. Yes. I mean, that's one reason I think that the NCA um, is, you know, is advised, you know, and that's the membership. It's not Tipilinity, the, the people that work for schools and, and conferences are the voters. That's um, why I think there must be a vote on this. And I do hope something happens in June to get um, to get something in place, particularly for the states that don't have an NIL law going into effect on July 1. Because if we have six or eight or 10 states with N- NIL go, and then we've got 40 states where it's still disallowed, I, I mean, that's unfair. Right. Here. And then the Congress piece, again, is important that I think everyone would prefer to have a single national rule that would be um, sanctioned by Congress so that whatever rule it is, isn't subject to um, challenges in the courts because that's been debilitating. So there has been a hope that Congress would step in and preempt the states, bless a uniform law, create some limited, limited litigation you know, protection, and then sort of sort out the employment classification of these athletes. If that can happen, then I think we're, you know, we've got some good pillars there to build this system around. So we'll see. We don't know. We'll see. Uh, I mentioned earlier the George Floyd event and how that has kind of transformed uh, sports and the way athletes are speaking up, things they didn't necessarily do in the past. Uh, what's your sense of how that has played its way out? And uh, what do you see some of the ramifications of that? It was a very traumatic event for everyone. Um, eye-opening, I think, for everyone to see in some ways how much has not changed over the course of our country's history. Um, I, you know, forced many of us to get educated um, about everything from that journey you know, uh, you know, in our country's history to the words we use um, to, you know, the systems which remain broken. And I, I think the silver lining was positive energy around, hey, we've got to do something. We can't just talk about this. We can't just be on the sidelines. We've got to step in and act. So um, that was, you know, and our student athletes leading the way. I mean, 
you know, they were, they were, they were, you know, essentially all over it. So I, I think what, unfortunately, COVID was a mitigator, I think, in terms of their ability to really, to really come together. I mean, they were doing things by Zoom because they weren't, for the most part, um, able to be on campus in the ways that would have allowed, I think, for more forcefulness in their response. That, I think, will change. It'll be very interesting this fall to see how the return to campus, the loosening of restrictions will affect uh, programs and initiatives, particularly those that are athlete-led around DE&I. Um, I, I can say for our conference, we, we've worked really hard on this one to try to do our part. Uh, two years ago, Jed, we formed a working group. We have a plan around this in the Big East. Last year, we ramped up our efforts. We've got a number of things in the works. You know, we have a platform to talk about this. We have a relationship with RISE, a national education provider on this. We were supportive this past year of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement through a patch, jersey patch for men's and women's basketball. We created a ward named after Coach John Thompson from Georgetown, who, who sadly passed away last fall, to recognize significant efforts here. And it's not enough. You know, we're working on hiring. We're working on, um, you know, sort of phase two, I guess, as we head into next year. And so whether, you know, whether it's racial equity, um, social equity, gender equity, obviously the NCA right now is focused on gender equity because of what happened with the women's basketball tournament this past year. Um, an unfortunate event, but hopefully a silver lining there too, in terms of awakening people to what we can do to really get women's basketball where it needs to be. Um, I'm going to be an optimist about it. I hope all of this brings people together in positive ways and enforces the change that's still needed. Um, and so that's our commitment at the Big East. We, you know, we know we're a college conference. We don't have the cloud of some, but we're, we're going to make sure we do our part to be a positive contributor um, at this important moment in U.S. history. So when you think about uh, your career and the two or three things that you're the most proud of accomplishing. I would say the, the two we've talked about, the, the launch of the WNBA is at or near the top. I mean, that was an extraordinary experience. Very grateful to David and Russ, especially for putting me in that position back in 1996 after the Atlanta Olympics had concluded and we were ready to roll with the league. Um, they they opened so many doors for me, and I'll, I'll be eternally grateful. Miss David greatly. Glad Russ is still around, a dear friend. So that one, being part of the relaunch of the Big East, and you know, has been an extraordinary. And hope our successes continue. Um, that's my commitment to hope. You know, make sure that happens. And you know, um, and the USA Basketball FIBA Peach, which we talked about, being part of that bringing together of um, the NBA and USAB to support our national team effort with NBA players and then WNBA players, seeing the successes, seeing the opportunities for U.S. leadership around the world, you know, in the start of, in the sport of basketball has been an, it's been an honor to be connected to that program. So those three, I think, have been amazing um, experiences, seeing Villanova win the national championship twice. I mean, I have quite a few, <laughs> Jed. That I, I can't really even like rank them when you start to lay them all out there. But, you know, last but not least, I'd just say, you know, having my family remain supportive as I've been running around these last, you know, couple, you know, couple of decades. My daughters are two amazing young women. My husband, Charlie's a saint. So uh, I've been, you know, miss my dad. My dad passed away in 1988 right after I took my NBA job. So he was never able to see any of this, but he's with me always. And so, but to have my, you know, my immediate family now, my mom, my brother, George are all around. So that part has been uh, a joy. 
without, from my perspective of knowing you and seeing the impact you've made, not just in athletics, but broader, has been really mind boggling in terms of how well you've done it, how you've conducted yourself as a leader in terms of the things you've done in such a professional way. I mean, it, you're, you're an exemplary leadership figure for people that are in sports and outside of sports. So thanks for sharing those stories and insights with us today. Really appreciate you taking time to be with us. Uh, Jed, thanks as always for being, you know, for everything. I appreciate those kind words and thanks to you for everything you've done with our industry. You've helped get us to where we are today. So thank you. Well, it's been our pleasure. Thanks again.